You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Until the philosophy Which old one race superior and another Inferior Is finally And permanently Discredited And abandoned Everywhere is war It's a war That until they're no longer First class and second class citizens of any nation Until the color of a man's skin Is of no more significance Than the color of his eyes Miss a war That until the basic human rights Welcome my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 13th day of June, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite you all, as always, to check into my websites, including CorbettReport.com, the flagship website, ReportageBook.com, where you can find out more information about my forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist.com, where you can find out about the ongoing documentary project Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, and ClimateGate.tv, which continues to be updated on at least a weekly basis about the ongoing complete meltdown of the anthropogenic global warming myth. Also, I'd like to ask my listeners to support and visit those websites that help to broadcast, podcast, syndicate, and otherwise distribute this podcast, including archive.org, where you can find episodes of this podcast to be streamed or downloaded if you ever have problems contacting the Corbett Report homepage servers, cascadiapublicradio.org, where you can find small file size, easy-to-download, smaller bitrate versions of this podcast, mediamonarchy.com, tragedyandhope.com, and, of course, zeropointradio.com, where you can not only listen to this and many other quality programming, including Media Monarchy and other such podcasts and radio shows. But also they have recently added a Z-Pod, whereby you can subscribe to Media Monarchy or Ground Zero or Corporate Report feeds, which may be important as I had some feedback recently from at least one listener who's been having trouble downloading recent Corbett Report episodes through iTunes. If you are having such problems and can't resolve them in any other way, perhaps you can check out zeropointradio.com and download the podcast through their Z-Pod. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 13th day of June 2010. And now for the real news. Making headlines this week, the newly elected Cameron government in the UK is already coming under fire for the decision of Environment Secretary Caroline Spellman to grant approval for field trials of genetically modified potatoes in Britain. The trials will be testing potatoes that have been genetically modified to resist certain types of potato blights. 
The intense criticism of the decision comes as bad news continues to emerge about the health effects of genetically modified foods. A recently conducted Russian study into the effects of GMO foods on animals has further strengthened previous studies that show a link between consumption of genetically modified foods and long term sterility. The study tested the effects of GM soy on hamsters and discovered that declines in fertility and child mortality among, amongst hamsters fed GM soy increases each generation, with the third generation of test animals being completely sterile. GM soy fed hamsters also had a five fold higher infant mortality rate and other mutations, including hair growing inside their mouths. The big biotech companies have long been accused of attempting to suppress studies that show the ill effects of GM foods, and such suspicions were confirmed last month when it emerged that a powerful agribusiness lobbying organization had worked intimately with the UK government to shape a report on the effects of GM crops. Emails obtained by the press between the Agricultural Business Council and the UK's Food Standards Agency shows how the lobby group shaped a key government report to stress the importance and even the inevitability of GM food adoption in the EU. The council even sent a key official at the FSA an email telling her who they wanted to sit on a steering group looking into the safety of GM foods, a steering group that the lobby group referred to as a public engagement exercise on GM food. Two FSA members, Dr. Helen Wallace and Professor Brian Wynn, have quit their positions at the UK food regulatory body, saying the emails, quote, expose how the Food Standards Agency is acting as a puppet of the GM industry by colluding with foreign GM companies to undermine people's access to GM free food supplies in Britain. End quote. All around the world, people are beginning to stand up to the biotech giants, with Zimbabwe rejecting GM food as food aid for its population, and Haiti turning down $4 million worth of hybrid seeds donated by Monsanto Corporation. Shuneso Pepreki, a, so a soil scientist at the University of Zimbabwe addressing the government's refusal of GM food aid, said, quote, Just because we are hungry does not make us accept food which we do not like. End quote. Also this week, BP is facing yet more negative publicity as even corporate-controlled media outlets start exposing the illegal tactics that the company has been using to try to keep the press from reporting on the full scope of the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Every security guard here has given the instructions to every single news crew. You can be with, it, with outside of 100 yards of the workers along the boom. And who's saying that? Because nobody can tell me unless you're the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, you're the Coast Guard, or you're the military, can you tell me where to go on this public beach? I can tell you where to go because I'm employed to keep this, be I'm employed to keep this beach safe. And right now, those are my instructions. I have to keep the workers safe as well. Uh, I'm going to go and try and talk to a worker under the tent. Can I do that? No, no. He's on a break. You are not allowed to interview any workers. The workers can talk to the media, according to the BP CEO two days ago. That word still hasn't trickled down to you all? That, we've already heard that one, too. Yeah, um, what do you mean you've heard that one? It's email, true. The email does not say, does not explicitly give you permission to do that. <laughs> there are quotes from Doug Suttles that say, no one has been barred access to talk to the media, and that it's a misunderstanding, and the word hasn't trickled down to all the appropriate channels yet. That's what he said two days ago. So two days later, that word still hasn't trickled down. The word, the word down, has been, it. it's been briefed to us. By whom? Who's briefing you all? That's not important right now. Well, it's if you're telling me that I can't important. do it, it's important that I know who's briefing you. What's important right now is you cannot talk to the workers. You're interfering with their jobs right now. If there's somebody on break, I'm interfering with his job? Yes. You're interfering with his rest. In other news, you are watching a man in front of a green screen reading from a teleprompter. 
If you are not using the links provided in the video description to start researching these stories for yourself, then you are missing the point. Finally this week, Japan's new Prime Minister Naoto Kan is warning that the country will have to implement a tough new round of fiscal austerity measures or face a Greek-style collapse. Japan has the largest debt-to-GDP ratio in the developed world, but unlike many countries, Japan is a net lender, and 95% of the nation's debt is held by Japanese investors. The comments from Prime Minister Khan come on the heels of a G20 finance minister's meeting in Busan that concluded that the time for fiscal stimulus is over and nations around the globe will have to implement tough new austerity measures in order to bring the global sovereign debt crisis under control. G20 finance ministers issue a statement saying public finances must be brought into line to calm global markets. Their meeting here in South Korea came as a debt crisis continued to ripple through Europe. The recent events in southern Europe highlight the importance of sustainable public finances and the need for our countries to put in place credible and growth-friendly measures to deliver fiscal sustainability. Those countries with serious fiscal challenges need to accelerate the pace of consolidation. As many economic analysts are noting, what this represents is not a step toward economic recovery, but a step further toward total economic collapse. Even George Soros, the billionaire who was criminally convicted of insider trading in France and who made his fortune by breaking the Bank of England, has warned that this is only the beginning of a new act in the unfolding economic Armageddon. Quote, The collapse of the financial system as we know it is real and the crisis is far from over, he said at a conference in Vienna. Indeed, we have just entered Act Two of the drama. As many observers have noted, the current economic crisis, brought about by the issuing of quadrillions of dollars of phony wealth in the form of collateralized debt obligations, credit default swaps, and other exotic instruments with the full aid and complicity of governments and the finance sector, is now being used to strengthen the international regulatory framework that has allowed this situation to develop in the first place. Now stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 133 of The Corbett Report, Wars and Rumors of Wars, where we talk to Gerald Salente of TrendsResearch.com and Zach Fillingham of GeopoliticalMonitor.com about the prospects for war and peace, both long and short term. Welcome to episode 133 of The Corbett Report, Wars and Rumors of Wars. Certainly, to anyone who's been keeping their eye on the news lately, you will have heard your fair share of rumors of war. On Wednesday, the United Nations Security Council approved a new round of sanctions, the fourth since 2006. The U.S. and its allies claim Iran is secretly trying to develop nuclear weapons, this denied by Tehran, which insists it has every right to practice a peaceful nuclear program. U.S. President Barack Obama says he hopes the sanctions will sway Iran from pursuing what he calls its nuclear ambitions. This resolution will put in place the toughest sanctions ever faced by the Iranian government, and it sends an unmistakable message about the international community's commitment to stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. In response, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad did not mince his words, condemning the sanctions. The people who themselves have an atomic bomb, have used an atomic bomb and have stockpiles, make resolutions against Iran, for one day possibly having one. These resolutions have absolutely no value for the people of Iran. 
These resolutions are like a used handkerchief for us and should be thrown into a waste bin. They cannot hurt Iran. North Korea has warned of an all-out military strike in response to South Korea's plan to resume anti-North Korean broadcasts from loudspeakers at the border. In a statement released on Saturday, the general staff of the Korean People's Army said that South Korea's move may turn Seoul into a sea of flames. Another big story developing this morning, the London Times is reporting Saudi Arabia is giving Israel the go-ahead to use Saudi airspace to bomb Iranian nuclear facilities. The paper reports the Saudis have already conducted tests to ensure that no jets, including their own, are shot down if Israeli bombers need to pass by. Joining me now, MSNBC military analyst Colonel Jack Jacobs. Good morning to you. Morning, okay, before I get to what this all means, how can you ensure for a fact with some sort of a test that your planes won't get get shot down in a live situation? Uh, you just clear an air corridor and you make sure that all of your radar and other other things that monitor the area clear that area too so that anybody who's in this corridor, even the Israeli jets, uh, are cleared all the way through and you're, there's no intrusion by anybody else's aircraft. Okay. In it. Given all of this, does this mean there is something imminent here? Well, it may not be imminent, but the only way that you can get from Israel to uh, uh, Iran is through Saudi Arabia. We've got a map that shows that. There's no way that you can get from Israel to Saudi Arabia, uh, to Iran without clearing through Saudi Arabia, unless you're going to go all the way around, and that's, uh, that's, that's too difficult. If you want to conduct a preemptive strike on nuclear facilities inside Iran, the quickest, easiest, and best way to do it is right through Saudi Arabia. And apparently this particular move has gotten the backing of the U.S. US, but would Israel consult with the United States before taking any sort of action? Well, you can bet that they will. Let me tell you a real quick story. I, this is about over 20 years ago when I was still in the Army. Um, I, I was on a, a trip over to Israel and we had a meeting with uh, the government. And at that time, the defense minister of Israel was Yitzhak Rabin. And I asked him at the time, I mean, you're talking about a long time ago, uh, I asked him at the time, why don't you guys go and attack the facilities in Iran, which, it, which were we knew where they were. They were in uh, uh, Al Bashir and and, and, and Ab Ali and places like Natanz and places like that. And he stuck his finger in my chest, really, really forcefully. He said, "Because you guys won't let us do it." Uh, you can bet that Israel is going to ask our permission, or certainly will inform us they're about ready to do it before they do it, and we're we're going to let them do it. I can tell you. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting indeed, isn't it? Especially interesting how people are talking about the possible onset of World War III in such a calm and collected manner and so forcefully behind what will undoubtedly be a worldwide conflagration of unimaginable pain and misery for so many people. Oh, interesting, isn't it? Yes, well... As I say, for anyone who has been keeping their eye on the news lately, it would have been impossible to have missed all of the various saber-rattling that's going on in so many different ways, in so many different locations right now. And, unfortunately, things only seem to be intensifying. Because just when you thought that the ridiculous war rhetoric and propaganda and run-up to war couldn't get any more ridiculous, it does. Neocons claim Osama is a guest of Iranian government. From Kurt Nimmo, it's an urban, or in this case rural, myth that refuses to die. Osama bin Laden is alive and living under the protection of our most dreaded enemy, or one of them anyway, Iran. 
Quoting from UPI, Osama bin Laden and his top aides are hiding in a mountainous town in northeastern Iran, and Turkey knows it, intelligence sources said Tuesday. Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan is aware that bin Laden, his chief lieutenant al-Zawahiri, and five other high-ranking al-Qaeda leaders have been living under Tehran's protection for the past five years, military intelligence website Debka File reports. Ah, a sterling source. Debka File, the Jerusalem-based English-language Israeli open-source military intel website. Debka File, basically propaganda outfit tailored to the demented worldview of American neocons, according to investigative reporter Ronan Bergman. This also serves the propaganda agenda of perpetually warmongering Likudites in Israel who are connected at the hip with American neocons. Both incessantly call for killing grandmothers and grade school kids in some fantastic bombing campaign against Iran. Now, if the Iran war rhetoric doesn't strike anyone as particularly new, that's merely because you've been paying attention, and perhaps even paying attention to the Corbett Report podcast, where way back in episode two, we talked about the coming World War III war with Iran. And even at that time, three years ago, we were noting how the constant rhetoric about war with Iran is designed to wear down the public, that it's almost a war of attrition against the government's own citizens in order for the government to convince those citizens that war will not only be necessary, but inevitable, so that when the bombs start to fall, people will be somewhat resigned to the fact, having seen it coming for so long, and feeling that there's nothing that could be done to stop it. But is there? Are we on some sort of inevitable crash course towards World War III? Is the rising giant of China and Russia going to strike out and test the military might of the declining Anglo-American world order? Or is there some way to prevent and head off at the pass what we see coming towards us? Well, of course, those are questions that unfortunately only time will really be able to tell. But as with all things, we can discern future trends from current events. And that perhaps there is no one better suited to doing that than Gerald Salenti of Trends Research. Of course, people can check out Trends Research at trendsresearch.com or trendsjournal.com. But for those who have been perhaps out of the picture for a long time, Gerald Salente, of course, is one of the world's leading trends prognosticators and has been right so many times about so many things in the past. And he is, if anything, a very straight shooter. So it was with a great pleasure that I had the opportunity to talk to him the other day about the possibility or perhaps the probability, of war with Iran, and what such a war would really mean for the citizens of America and Canada and Japan and Australia, the industrialized G20 nations, as that conflagration spreads out and begins to engulf other countries and economies with it. So let's start today by taking a quick listen to the beginning of my interview with Gerald Salente. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you on this 11th day of June 2010. And today I'm honored to be joined on the line once again by Gerald Salente, the world's leading trends forecaster and the man behind the Trends Journal at TrendsResearch.com. 
Uh, for those who have been living under a rock for the past few decades, uh, Gerald Salente has correctly forecast everything from the 1997 Asian financial crisis to the collapse of the Soviet Union, from the, the 2000 dot-com bust to the recession of 07, the panic of 08, and many, 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 many other forecasts that have come to pass with stunning accuracy. Mr. Salente, it is always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's always a pleasure being on with you, James. All right. Well, today I wanted to hit on a subject that's been gaining a lot of press lately, and that's the possibility of war with Iran. And this is something that's been on the burner for years now. Uh, but the war rhetoric seems to be intensifying with Bilderberg 2010 apparently greenlighting an airstrike on Iran. And, and now we see a lot of the pieces of that puzzle falling into place with the UN Security Council voting in yet more sanctions on Tehran this week. And, and even the discovery of Osama bin Laden alive and well and evidently not dead of kidney failure from his years on dialysis in a cave somewhere in Afghanistan. But no, we're now being told he's actually being hosted by, guess who, the Iranian government. Yes. So it certainly seems the possibility for war is there, and the entire region remains a powder keg in search of a match. Uh, Gerald Salente, what do you see playing out in this region in the near term? What's well, playing out in front of our eyes? We saw what happened with the Israeli attack on the uh, flotilla of supplies going into Gaza, and how that was so distorted by the Israeli press and the U.S. media and how it's being condemned worldwide. And we also have very other uh, interlocking factors that don't seem to be playing into it, but will play a bit great part in it. And that is the great distraction. We have this massive oil spill in the United States going on, uh, another cover-up, uh, whether they cover up the economy, cover up atrocities, will cover up the damage of the oil spill. It's one cover-up after another. So there's going to become a point when they have to divert the people's attention away from the catastrophes going on at home, be they environmental or economic. And Iran is the perfect straw man for that. I don't know why we hate Iran so much. I know about the hostage crisis in 1978-79, uh, but this is a lot, you know, this is going on a bit too long. What do they want to do, restore the Shah? Or is it that BP needs to regain the oil fields that they overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953 uh, for that oil? And, of course, along with Standard Oil and the United States CIA in coercion with the, uh, with the, with the British uh, spy agency. So what is this all about? It's all about oil. Do you think we'd be in a rock if their major export was broccoli? So we're looking at Iran as the perfect foil for the failures of the United States and continued aggression by, by Israel. And I don't want to get any Gerald Salenti's an anti-Semite baloney. I could talk about my country. I could talk about anybody's. If you don't want to listen to what I say, fine. I don't, you don't have to believe me. I don't have to believe anybody. We only look at the facts. And the facts are these, James. Israel continues to break international law, whether it's stealing Palestinian land or committing acts of, acts of high treason on the high seas. So let's call it what it is. And the United States keeps taking that role in it, and the United States people, by proxy, are supporting these atrocities. So what we're looking at is a continuation of war. 
and they're going to use a false flag to make it happen. As you point out, now they're telling us Osama bin Laden is hiding in Iran. They're losers. I mean, what do we do? We spent almost a trillion dollars looking for this guy already, waging two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Nine year, eight years later, and they still can't find him. They're going to remember George Bush was going to bring him back, dead or alive. And by the way, these guys that call themselves commanders in chief that have never worn a uniform or fought in one, you know, they, they're not commanders in chief. They're commanders of chumps, and the chumps are the people that support these atrocities. So this is going to be a false flag attack, as we see it that's going to divert the people's attention from the economy that's continuing to collapse, that they keep covering up with digital money not worth the paper it's not printed on, an environmental catastrophe that's going to continue to destroy not only the, the environment around uh, the, Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, but the people's lives as well. Well, uh, don't don't hold back. Tell us what you really feel, Gerald. No. Well, again, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, let's call it what it is. These guys are losers. I just heard Secretary of Defense Gates saying at a NATO conference that we have to show some progress in the next year, or else our publics—that's the language he uses—publics—will lose our support. What, wait until a year? How about this last offensive that they were going to, that they were going to do in Afghanistan that turned out to be uh, a, a major loser? Did anyone forget that one already? Remember, they were going to take this Taliban stronghold in Marjah, and then they were going to move further off or further in and and, uh, uh, and and run another major offensive, and they keep losing. They're losers. The American military hasn't won a major war since World War II. We have an armistice in Korea. There was never a a, a victory. We have a uh, we was we, we lost fifty eight thousand troops and 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 hundreds of billions of dollars in Vietnam. Oh, then there was the great victory of Ronald Reagan in, in Grenada. Yeah, the great empire of Grenada, about the size of D.C. And, of course, there was George Bush, you know, beating up the street gang of Noriega in Panama. And for all those that say, well, Mr. Salenti, what about the first Gulf War? Yeah, how about the first Battle of Iraq? That's all that was. We're losing. Every day, James, you pick up the paper, eight killed in Iraq. 20 killed in Afghanistan. Look, in the last week, in the last week, we've lost over 20 U.S. troops. They're going nowhere, and it's the same old story. More men, more time, and more money. This is perfect empire decline. Depleting the treasury of a declining economy at a time when we need it the most to become in far, engaged in foreign entanglements. Eisenhower warned us about becoming, uh, about the military-industrial complex taking over the country, and so too did did uh, general did, did, uh, did the most decorated marine in history until he died, Smedley Butler, calling war a racket. We have the the soldiers of the Fortune 500 fighting these wars. There are more mercenaries from the Halliburtons and 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 other groups 
the, uh, the, 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 what they call a military contract. That's white shoe boy language. There are more of them in Afghanistan than the 94,000 U.S. boots on the ground. Well, uh, that's a key point right there, because I can't see any way in which an attack on Iran at this point wouldn't be suicide in, on so many levels from so many different perspectives, not only because Iran actually has an army and actually can fight back, unlike Iraq, but uh, also because it would be a, a touch-off for a World War III type event with, with China and Russia starting to get into the game at that point. And I can't imagine how that would in any way, in any shape or any form, play into the hands of, of people who are genuinely interested in in the best interests of, of America or their allies, certainly, but uh, perhaps it will play into the financiers' interests. Uh, do, do you think the, the plan or strategy here would be to win such a conflict or merely to get into well, such a conflict? Just to get into con such a conflict, as you pointed out, these are the Iranians. They're the Persians. Did anybody forget their history? They fought the Iraqis for eight years, a war, by the way, instigated by Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Remember that famous photograph of Donald Rumsfeld, that little twit, another one of these swivel-chair generals of, of sorts, you know, that sends other people to go die while they hide behind barricades and, and, and bodyguards, giving Saddam Hussein the golden spurs to spur on that war against Iran that lasted for eight years and the Iranians lost nearly a million people and didn't give up one inch of territory. So, no, it's going to be a losing war. And let's get, uh, let's get this image out of the way also about that invincible Israeli defense. You know, they're not. They lost in Lebanon. Let's call it what it was. You know, and the only reason why they other won those other wars is because the United States was so involved in them. If Israel goes into Iran, it'll be the end of Israel and the beginning of World War III. And so what we're looking at is suicide. Again, they keep backtracking on their pledges. We heard from General Stanley McChrystal as, as Commander-in-Chief uh, or Commander-in-Chump Obama gave him more, more men, some more than 30,000, and ramped up the war and how they were going to wage this great offensive in the Kandahar province. Well, now they're backtracking. And say, so, well, no, it's not going to be an offensive. We're going to win over the hearts of the people through our brilliant programs. You're going to win over the hearts of anybody, your occupiers. They want to blow your brains out and get you out of there. How about calling this guy General Stanley McChrystal Meth? Because that's what he must be on. They're killing our innocent men. They're killing our soldiers. They're killing innocent people. And they're losing this war. There is no victory in sight. There won't be. Alexander the Great couldn't beat them. Stanley McChrystal Meth isn't going to beat them, led by uh, Obama or Bush. It's a losing game, and they're draining our treasury, James, at a time when we need to rebuild this country. It's an atrocity, and everybody should be out in the streets talking about it and trying to stop it. I stand firmly with Ron Paul on this one. As do I, and I'm sure as do many of the listeners out there, 
Well, once again, Gerald Salente is available at trendsresearch.com, and I would highly suggest people take a look at the Trends Journal and consider subscribing if you can. And as always, of course, he does offer uh, discounts to anyone who is unable to pay because of their economic hardships. So feel free to contact them and get in touch if you would like a copy of the newsletter but can't afford a full subscription. Also, uh, of course, I would suggest that people go to CorbettReport.com and download that interview in its entirety as it's quite interesting. And Gerald Salente is an extremely interesting person to be talking to and extremely knowledgeable on this subject. And I think he's quite right to bring this back to the economic fundamentals because, as we know, most wars really are about the economy, and they are either uh, benefiting the, the economy or sending it into a further landslide. And I think there are two ways in which we can look at the economic aspects of these wars, which are beginning to ramp up and the, the war rhetoric that's being bandied about. And I think one of these ways that we can look at it is the old way that we have looked at it many times in the past, including, of course, in our episode on Smedley Butler, who wrote that war is a racket. And that's something that I think we do know quite well by now. But for those who don't, or for those who need refreshing about some of the very specific ways in which war is a racket, let's take a listen to an excellent documentary, Iraq for Sale. Pretty much any job that's in the military, there's a civilian contractor right there. Across the board, people lost their jobs. Quartermaster companies, mechanic... Any logistics soldiers were involved with, their jobs were outsourced to KBR. But when I could be actively becoming a better uh, soldier and becoming more proficient in my job, instead I'm going to sit up on guard duty. It was devastating. There was so much money being given away over there to contractors. I mean, there were there were jobs that didn't even need to be there. Uh, you know, we'd go into the tent to use our, our internet, and the woman who would put my name down to assign me to a computer would be a civilian contractor who was making six figures to be over there. But why is she there? Why are we paying this woman to do this? It certainly affected retention. All across the board, there was thousands of soldiers sitting around doing nothing. I don't know, I don't know why any, any military person would re-enlist to do the same job when they could get out of the military and make you know, six times their money and uh, and do the same job. They had uh, the little mobile units that we had to put our clothes in, like a net duffel bag. Halliburton charged government $100 for every bag of clothes they washed. I was told by my chain of command that I was not allowed to wash my laundry on my own. I had to take it to KBR to have it washed, even though we all knew that they were doing a horrible job because they get $99 a bag for a bag of laundry that I could do at home for $3. Cost Plus encourages you to run up the cost of a program because you are going to get a percentage of the, the end result. And so there's no incentive to stay at Motel 6. Stay at the Ritz-Carlton uh, in Cutter, folks. The place that KBR chose for orientation in Kuwait was a huge resort set right on the ocean. They had five-star meals catered in every day. It was so lavish. Rows of vegetable platters, beef platters, fish platters. It's a cost-plus contract. KBR looked at it. The more money we spend, that's more money we get in our pockets. They got the wrong equipment, ordered the wrong stuff, computers still in boxes, new vehicles. 
they'd push them out in what they called burn pits. And they just set it on fire, claim it as a loss, get more money for the right equipment or the right stuff they needed. You got brand new trucks over there, and there's not even oil filters. So when the motor blows, what do you do? Buy a new truck and build the government. $75,000 truck. They wouldn't even have a spare tire to fit it. And we had to blow it up. And they didn't care how the burden did because the government's paying for it. The legal way of stealing from the government or taxpayers' money. Unscrupulous multinationals using war as an excuse to raise profits? Oh, never. Well, let's go to HalliburtonWatch.org to find out more about that. We can see this from a, uh, an article entitled Log Cap Military Contract. Quote, Halliburton's largest government contract is with the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Under the contract known as LogCap for Logistic Civilian Augmentation Program, Halliburton is responsible for providing supplies and services to the military on a global basis. Some of the typical civil logistics carried out under the contract are the construction of military housing for the troops, transporting food and supplies to military bases, and serving food at military cafeterias. The military has always used private contractors to carry out civil logistics, but not to a great extent. In 1985, the military created LogCap with the purpose of privatizing more of the duties involved in civil logistics. The military first used LogCap in 1988 to construct and maintain two petroleum pipeline systems in Southwest Asia in support of contingency operations. But most of the military's civil logistic activities were still not privatized. It was Dick Cheney, as Defense Secretary in 1992, who spearheaded the movement to privatize most of the military's civil logistics activities. Under the direction of Secretary Cheney, the Pentagon paid $9 million to Halliburton subsidiary KBR to conduct a study to determine whether private companies like itself should handle all of the military's civil logistics. KBR's classified study concluded that greater privatization of logistics was in the government's best interests. Shortly thereafter, on August 3, 1992, Secretary Cheney awarded the first comprehensive log cap contract to KBR. The Washington Post reported, The Pentagon chose KBR to carry out the study and subsequently selected the company to implement its own plan. Three years later, in 1995, Halliburton hired Cheney as its CEO, end quote. Oh, but the revolving door at the top between business and government, oh, that's, that's a conspiracy theory, right? Well, obviously, I think it's quite apparent to anybody who studied the excesses of the Bush-Cheney era that absolutely war is nothing, absolutely nothing other than a racket, and every possible opportunity to exploit that racket in order to make more profit is used by the cronies who populate either the government or business, as if there's really a distinction at that level. But there's another key sense in which economics plays very heavily into the situation that we find ourselves in today, because as, of course, we pointed out in the Sunday update from today's episode, we are on the brink of an economic meltdown so vast, so incredible as to really have no historical precedent. And that was the ominous warning that even Soros is giving about Act 2 of the financial crisis about to unfold before us. And the question becomes a very, very real question. To what extent can the U.S. military afford to be the policeman of the world anymore, 
even if they want to continue acting in that role. And this is something that is, has been excellently pointed out and written up about in a very interesting article on geopoliticalmonitor.com entitled Western Military Power to Wane. Now, uh, my long-term listeners might remember that I had a monthly update, a geopolitical update with first Nico and then Marsha from geopoliticalmonitor.com. It's been a while since we've had that monthly update, but I took this opportunity to talk to Zach Fillingham, who is one of the editors and writers for the Geopolitical Monitor, about this report on Western military power to wane and what the significance of this ongoing economic collapse is in the face of increasing war rhetoric. Is it possible that wars like the scale and size of what we've seen in the past decade and what is being threatened as we see the run-up to the potential war in Iran, is it possible that that will no longer be possible in the new economic world order? Well, let's take a listen to an extract from my interview with Zach Fillingham on that question. Well, speaking of forecasters, uh, Zach Fillingham, geopoliticalmonitor.com, I wanted to get you on the program this week because a, a lot of commentators see the American military shaping up for yet more conflict around the globe from from the rising tensions in the Korean Peninsula to the continuing escalation of the Iran situation. But you had a, a forecast in the Geopolitical Monitor recently that, that had a bit of a different take on the long-term trend in military capabilities among NATO countries. It seems to fly in the face of this war rhetoric. So why don't you tell us about that forecast and the information it contained? Okay, well, um, first off, I'd like to qualify it all by saying um, the forecast looks over uh, a period of time of decades. So right now we're at this sort of historical moment where the the military power of the United States and NATO countries is extremely disproportionately high to the rest of the world. So you have a hegemonic uh, system. So looking, um, well, right now we can look at Europe and we can see these sort of various um, sovereign debt crises unfolding um, in pretty much take your pick any EU country. You got the UK running a deficit of around 12%. Uh, their national debt's around 68% of their GDP. Uh, Germany, national debt, uh, 73% of GDP. Also running a deficit, France running a deficit, Italy's deficit is 5.3. So basically you have deficit and debt across the board. Um, in these countries, basically this is going to be a problem that, um, well, we're starting to see the effects now, but the, the problem is not just now. It's going to be over the next decade. So it's going to become a question of what is cut. And in the, when it comes to the European countries, it is fairly certain that the sort of the axe is going to come down on military spending. Um, there are certain countries that we already see that occurring right now, um, such as Germany, um, which just uh, anna basically announced that they're considering cutting their army uh, of active soldiers from 250,000 to 150,000, cutting 40,000 jobs in the military and slashing their defense spending. We have France, um, the, the government of France, which is expected to make similar announcements over the next couple of weeks. And we have the United Kingdom, which is running a pretty serious um, deficit itself. And we, we heard earlier this week from David Cameron that there are, quote-unquote, painful cuts coming. So um, basically, and, and the UK is also currently undergoing a strategic defense review, which will probably come out with a series of recommendations for 
um, cutting procurement. They might even talk about revisiting their debate about um, renovating their independent nuclear deterrent in the form of the Trident program. So basically across Europe over the next 10 years, you're going to see a reduction in military spending and right. as a trend. Right. So and, exactly. So, so assuming that the, uh, the economic uh, collapse we see playing out in Europe right now continues uh, in, in the direction it's unfolding, then, then obviously uh, military spending will just have to decrease because of uh, uh, the constraints on, on most of the budgets in European nations. And I think that uh, that's pretty inevitable the way things are going right now. Um, but how about things, uh, how, how are things shaping up in the, in the Far East and specifically in China? Um, well, actually, sorry, if you'll let me digress for a second, I actually, I said all that and I didn't even touch down on the United States. So, um, the United States is a bit of a different situation. Obviously, their spending is way higher than Europe and, um, their current deficits in, in absolute terms are, are ex extremely high right now. And all you need to do is look at, um, Basically, take your pick of any congressional budget office report on sort of forecasting um, budgetary trends in America over the next 10 years, and you'll find a series of like rather depressing sort of forecasts, one, one of which, the one number that really stands out, um, jumps off the sheet, is the amount of um, interest payments that the government of the United States is going to need to make in 2020, according to the CBO. So currently that number is around $207 billion a year. Um, in 10 years, according to the CBO, that number will be $723 billion. So if you combine that amount of money with the sort of unfunded liabilities of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social, so, yeah, social Security, you have a massive budgetary pressure that's going to um, sort of push out defense spending in the United States as well. So... Um, is it cool if I talk about China then? Yes, okay, absolutely. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, my answers can be a bit long-winded. But um, so basically, when you have the West, you have, um, uh, as I was just saying, Europe and the United States, you have a downward budgetary pressures on defense spending. In the East, when it comes to and East Asia, South Asia, basically orbiting around China and India, um, you have sort of upward pressures on defense spending. For, these countries are cash rich because a lot of the debt that exists in um, the Western world is held by um, countries in the East now. Um, and you also have a sort of changing military dynamic in East Asia. And where it's going, um, no one's really sure. But basically the theory goes that as uh, American presence declines, as America declines as a sort of fundamental hegemonic power in East Asia, uh, the sort of there will become or there will form a sort of security vacuum, and the sort of constituent powers within Asia are going to need to sort of up their spending and um, basically rely on themselves for defense, and that will obviously create a um, uh, an arms race, which we're already seeing when it comes to China and India um, developing their navies. Um, you can look at East Asia military spending as, right now, a naval arms race between China and India, and even more recently, Vietnam's getting into the mix and some other Southeast Asian countries. And over the long term, it will also be probably a arms race to do with air power as well. 
So, so what does that trend mean for the the long term prospects of uh, the balance of power in uh, in the region, including, of course, uh, in the Korean Peninsula and also in uh, Taiwan? Um, well, it's 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 an interesting question because um, basically, as the sort of as as there's there are these pressures that exist on American defense spending, there's basically going to have to be decisions made within Washington as to what the overall military doctrine of the United States is going to be moving forward. And I'm talking about, you know, 10 years from now. So um, I'm not saying that the, the sort of Cold War alliance system that, that exists to this day that has sort of buttressed uh, East Asian security up until now, I'm not saying that's going to go away. It's just going to lessen in importance. And basically, as that sort of recedes, China is going to fill the space. And basically, it remains to be seen, this is the big question, whether the international institutions that exist now, like the UN, ASEAN, uh, plus three, all the international framework, whether that can sort of, whether that's robust and legitimate enough to um, sort of take the problems that are going to arise from Chinese rising power and give countries an opportunity to solve it in a peaceful way. For example, um, if all the actors in East Asia abide by the rules of the UN and accept the legitimacy of the UN, then it's possible that, say, territorial disputes in the South China Sea between China and Vietnam could be resolved in a sort of bureaucratic and peaceful way. On the other hand, um, if, base, if, if those institutions aren't respected and um, adhered to, you have the real possibility of actual military conflict um, between um, China and Vietnam, for example. And as we've seen in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, all questions of sort of future military foreca forecasting aside, um, that sort of military inter intervention is extremely expensive and arguably, and, you know, the the jury's still out as to how effective it is. So basically, you're going to be seeing East Asian countries by, er, boosting their own militaries and balancing off against one another. And the Cold War alliance system will be one side, and it sort of remains to be seen what the other side will be. Once again, Zach Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com well, whether or not America and Israel and their allies in the region will be able to carry out strikes on Iran and back it up with the necessary military might and a sustained military presence in that region, or whether they will simply run out of funds to do so before they're even able to pull off such an operation, well, that remains to be seen, and really only time will tell. But at any rate, if all wars require the consent of the population of those countries in order to be waged, and before the military is completely turned into a drone fleet that can be piloted by people on remote controls thousands of miles away, or even one day operated by computer algorithms and artificial intelligence, well, before the human factor is expunged completely from the equation, governments still require the assent of their citizens for any military action, and that means two things. 
one whatever they try to pull in the region there will likely be some type of triggering event and as we all know false flags are the order of the day so we have to be prepared for the eventuality that there will be a false flag to blame on North Korea or Iran or whoever is in disfavor at the moment and we have to do what we can to raise awareness of this tactic beforehand in order to discredit that trick and to take it out of their arsenal because it is the most important trick they have in their infowar armory and perhaps the best way that we can counteract that is to simply show people how the trick works and thereby break that tool right in front of their face and I am honored to see that the When False Flags Don't Fly video that I did uh, in on around the April 19th anniversary this year has really taken off uh, lately. And as much as it was gaining attention before, it's continued to gain attention and being spread around the web widely right now and so far has over 45,000 views. So certainly it has touched a chord with people. And I would certainly hope that uh, people out there are continuing to spread that video as it is the best I've been able to do so far towards articulating what the false flag paradigm is and how it operates, and thereby inoculating people against the ability of the powers that be to use that to stampede us into yet another war. The other tech tactic or technique or a gun that we have in our Infowar arsenal is to, once again, bring it back to what everyone can relate to, the pocketbook. Because people understand that wars mean increased taxes and they inevitably mean greater government spending. And if we can truly make people understand that they are paying for these wars and that not only them but their children and their grandchildren are going into servitude in order to wage wars of aggression around the world to drop bombs on people who have done nothing towards us except have the audacity to try to build up perhaps a, a nuclear program without the uh, approval of Washington. Well, once we can bring that back to an economic level, that's a level that many people can understand. So once again, using sources like Iraq for sale or whatever other sources are out there, Ron Paul's speeches or uh, Meet Smedley Butler, a previous episode of this Corbett Report podcast, those are the types of things that a lot of people will be able to relate to and which will get them on your side. Once again, they do require our assent in order to wage their wars of aggression. And if we refuse to assent, then we can stop the war. Don't let those Iraq protests in 2003 fool you into thinking that there's nothing that we can do about it. Imagine how much a more incredibly powerful anti-war protests we could amass at this stage of the game several years on with all of the water that's gone under that bridge imagine how much more we would be able to mobilize the masses against such a catastrophic idea well i leave it to you as always to continue the research and to continue to inform others about the issues that really matter as we stand here on the precipice of all-out war That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 134 of the Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Culture Jamming. As generals gathered in their masses
like witches at black masses. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh Lord!